Now, tonight, we are in Journey Through Genesis, and we are in part 17. This is the second part of Genesis 19, and unfortunately, we will not finish Genesis 19 tonight. Just a lot to cover, and I'm taking my time. So we'll be in Genesis 19 uh, tonight and then next week as well. I, I want to say this. We prayed for a friend of Penny's who had cirrhosis of the liver and, and was looking at a liver transplant. And Penny just told me right before church, God's touched her. God's raised her up. She no longer needs a transplant. She's two points away from being totally normal on her count that they do for the liver. To God be the glory, amen? Isn't that awesome? I believe in miracles. I believe God still does miracles. I believe God still heals, even today. So that is awesome. Praise the Lord for that. So journey through Genesis. This is part 17, Genesis 19, part 2. And um, let me say a prayer, and we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts tonight, as only you can. I pray, God, that you would open these scriptures to us, and we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. I'm going to do a little review because this is so much uh, of a controversial, this is such a controversial subject, controversial chapter in the Bible. And so I want to take some time, do a little review. I've got some stuff to read to you. Um, So let me jump into it. We discussed how in modern scholarship, biblical scholarship, the sin of Sodom is considered to be either the men of the city wanting to have non-consensual sex with these angels who looked like men, or the men of the city did not show these angels who looked like men hospitality. They were not hospitable towards them. To many modern scholars, the homosexuality that was obviously a huge part of the identity of Sodom is downplayed or is seen as not even worth mentioning, especially in the context of it being considered sin. Now, we also looked at how the apostles, Peter, Paul, and then Jesus' half-brother Jude, all had something to say about Sodom and Gomorrah as well. And the homosexuality of Sodom is either explicitly mentioned or is strongly alluded to as sin. So we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to read through this, kind of take our time. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? 2 Peter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, now when is that? That's in Genesis 6. We dealt with that but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. We, we discussed that in great detail. That was an affront to the working of God to bring about the seed of the woman from being born in the earth. We looked at, in great detail at that, but he's going back. Peter's going back to that moment. So he pulls in this idea of these angels in Genesis 6 did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah. So now we're into the flood, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. So you see this idea of the 
fallen angels who were having sexual relations with the daughters of men, and, and, and that we've discussed that, like I said, in great detail. That's some strange stuff, but we've discussed that. And then you see the flood, and then you see immediately following Sodom and Gomorrah, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. This is right where we are in Genesis 19. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. goes on. Romans 1, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. They were not thankful, became futile. Listen, in their thoughts, their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of the corruptible uh, like man, birds, four-footed, creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served cre the creature rather than the creator. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men, with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty for their error, which was due, etc., etc. An obvious reference to homosexuality. And then Jude, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, again, the angels, he is reserved in everlasting chains under, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and going after strange flesh or set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal life. Now, I want to pick up this idea that I, <clears throat> I mentioned uh, last week. And that idea is this, there is divine order to the physical universe when it comes to God. You can see it in the macro, the stars, the planets, the solar systems, matter, energy. You can see it in the micro, cells, molecules, neutrons, protons. There's an order. God is a God of order. We like to say that we are not under law but under grace. But if you jump off a building... You are subject to the law of gravity. You are under grace and subject to the law of gravity, which is God's law. And when we cooperate with God's law and submit to his order, our lives are better and we experience blessing just simply by playing by the rules. The reformers called this common grace, the idea that the sun shines on us. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Those are good things. And just by playing by the rules, not jumping off of a building, there is blessing for us. God designed the rules. He 
designed the way things work. Our world is trying to throw away the rules and rewrite them. I mentioned, again, a little bit of a review. I mentioned how that we had a parishioner, somebody here at church, a member of our congregation, dealing with their doctor. They have a baby girl, and the doctor said, how do you identify your child? Are you kidding me? My daughter is a girl. She's a girl. Well, we just wanted to make sure. There are some that say that sex is a biological concept. Male and female is uh, 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 how you would look at biology. But then gender is social, a social construct, man and woman. And, and we looked at, for instance, all the different uh, genders that are in, <clears throat> involved with Facebook, 63 of them. I mentioned to you, I'm not against people, no matter how they identify. I am for people. But the word never changes. Facebook rules may change, and academia may change their mind, but the word never changes. Amen? And so uh, let's wrap our minds around this. Let's continue. Culturally, men and women, and I'm going somewhere with this. Trust me. I'm going somewhere with this. Culturally, men and women used to be very distinct in their roles, responsibilities, and expectations. Even the way they looked and dressed. In uh, the early days of America, the women kept the home, worked in the home, and men worked outside the home, hunted and gathered, so to speak. And we so we saw that expressed uh, even in the way they dressed. They dressed appropriately. Men wore uh, pants, and women wore dresses and skirts, and those things seemed normal at the time. It was no big deal. And there's still evidence of those days. We see it on any bathroom, uh, public restroom in the world. You see signs, men, women. And there's an outcry against those stereotypical signs. But they're stereotypical because of the culture that, uh, you know, we, I was raised in and some of you were as well. But eventually, through World War II and a lot of cultural changes, women went to work outside the home. They dressed differently to accommodate that environment. And before too long, that, that accommodation became a cultural, uh, culturally accepted reality, the new norm. Now, I'm still talking about Sodom. Are you with me? And now, back in the day, respectable women... And I, I don't want to, I'm not, this is, man, this is so controversial, but I just feel like historically we've got to cover this. We've got to go here. But back in the day, respectable women and certainly uh, respectable men did not wear blush and rouge and eyeliner uh, and and even in excessive jewelry. And my grandparents were from the backwoods country, old school, East Texas, Southern Arkansas, and they referred to earrings as ear bobs. And, like, it was just something that, that 
you know, women, men, respectable, especially the, the blush, the eyeliner, things like that, they weren't around. Those things didn't happen in quote-unquote respectable circles. Now, there's still evidence of those days. We see that in religious orders like nuns, nunneries, uh, people who have taken different vows. They still kind of look like, uh, you know, uh, uh, that era and then, and there are others too. We have people in this church. I'm just saying that here's what happened. The, the lines moved. Things shifted, and what was not acceptable became acceptable. What was like isolated grew to become a cultural, quote-unquote, reality or norm. Are you with me? Now, I've been known to be a, a line crosser and, a, a, you know, a, a line mover, a norm buster. There was a day in my life where I was angry at my religious upbringing. I was angry at religion in general. I was mad, and I was trying to do something about it. And so I'll never forget the argument that I had with myself. Check this out. Talking about a day when women didn't wear uh, a lot of, you know, excessive jewelry and ear bobs and things like that. Well, by the time I came along in the 80s, that was totally normal. But you know what? What wasn't totally normal yet? Men wearing earrings. And so I decided it was time, you know, for us to break out of, of this, this restrictive uh, behavior in our culture. And so I stepped up to the plate, took it on personally, and decided to get an earring. Anthony, I mean, I watched a little bit too much MTV maybe. and I decided I was going to get me an earring. And so then the debate came because I live in the United States of America, which ear do you pierce? Because in the 80s, in America, if you pierced your left ear, you were straight. But if you pierced your right ear, you were gay. And I was straight, but I thought, you know, in Europe, I had heard, I had not been there, in Europe, it was the opposite. And I felt like I was this transcontinental kind of guy, like I'm all over the world. I'm global. I'm a global entity, you know. I'm a global citizen. And so if I go, if I become a rock star like I thought I was in my mind, and I tour in Europe, I'm going to have the wrong ear pierced. And then I started thinking, that is insane, this whole concept. Who made up these rules? So once again, put my fist in the air, march myself down to the local mall, and I got both ears pierced. I'm just being honest. Got a couple over here, got one over here, and I'm like, you know, who made these rules? Made my mother cry. 
upset everybody from my church past, you know, whatever. And now, check it out, nowadays, men pierce their ears all the time. Their eyebrows, their cheeks, their noses. And nobody looks at them and goes, well, something's wrong with that person, you know. I mean, there might be a few left. But for, for the most part, piercings are a reality. Am I telling the truth? Like there's excessive piercing that's taking place in our culture. In the 80s, I'm like fighting. And, pe- and I remember I remember being judged. And, oh, man, it was like a badge of honor. I just love to snarl at people. They're like, oh, that guy, he must be gay. And I'm like, whatever, you know what you're talking about. You know, get all mad, get up in their face. And it was just, it was a different day. But now things have shifted and accommodated. And now, I mean, you don't know if somebody's straight, gay. You know, you can't tell by their piercings per se. Things changed. The culture shifted and moved. Now, What's been slower to move is the idea of men wearing makeup. Now, we are down here in the deep-fried, dirty South. But just as there was a move somewhere back down the line where women, it would be normal to wear makeup and whatever, there, there are, there, there, what's the wording there? There's lines, uh, cosmetic lines just for men. Nowadays, men's makeup. We were in some fancy stores in some big cities recently, and there was the men's makeup counter. You know, you know, like when you're in Dillard's or something, you're walking through that. Men, you know what I'm talking about. You're walking through that part, and those people, they're wearing like black outfits. Oh, I'm wearing a black outfit. They're wearing black outfits, you know, and, and they're like, uh, you know, trying to get the women to stop so they can put some uh, Clinique perfume, but they also do makeup too. They got the makeup mirrors right there, and they're like making up women. Uh, we were in places like that where it was uh, they were reaching out to men too. Hey, hey, come here! And these guys had a lot of makeup on, and I don't know if they're gay. I don't know if they're straight. I, I have no idea, but I just know the line is is being pushed further and further. Back in the eighties, my uh, my uh, one of my roommates. We were all mad at the world. You just got to understand, this was a cesspool of anger in my apartment. We were mad at the world. And, and we were talking about how stupid some of these rules were. And so we just, he decided, I'm going to wear a dress around town and just see how people treat me. Now, he wasn't gay at all. He was straight. As, I mean, he was super straight. But he wore a dress around town, went to the mall. I know this is crazy. We were crazy kids. But he, he wore a dress, went out, and, the, and people were judging him, and we were, like, angry at people, like, you have no idea. Who made these rules? You know, we were just so mad. But now you see Kanye West in a skirt. You see different cultural icons pushing those lines and pushing those lines. But at 51 years of age, and after 20-something years, 26 years of pastoring, I've come to realize Those lines are not necessarily a bad thing. Having some lines and sticking to them is not necessarily a bad thing. Cultural norms. The sociologists call them cultural norms and mores. 
Those kinds of things are important. There's something to divine order, and especially in the area of sexuality and especially in the area of gender distinction. That is, man, woman, male, female, boy, girl. There's something powerful about it. I I was reminded of Psalm 133. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? (laughs) Oh, controversy. Psalm 133, I was reminded of this this little three-verse psalm, but it it says, I'm turning there. uh, It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments, like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. There's something to being under divine headship under divine authority, bowing the knee because the anointing flows down. The anointing flows down. So even when it comes to gender distinction, I think there is blessing that we miss in railing and fighting to blur the lines. Now, I think that does have something to do with sexuality, like in the day, I was like, it doesn't matter which year. And you know, I first of all, maybe we shouldn't have done that in the first place. You know, either either one. But then, secondly, that respecting of those cultural norms. I know society gets goofball and whatever, but when when in a in the United States of America, especially, there are lines that are there that were put there by ancestors, founding fathers, who had an understanding of Scripture and put word into law, law of the land. And the problem with the United States, and I love America, brothers and sisters. I'm just telling you I love the United States of America. I love my country. If you don't, just please travel abroad. Spend a week or two, and then come home. You will kiss the ground. I love the United States of America, but one of the things that made America so great was it's built, it is built on laws and order that comes from word. And as we spin off word and and get judges to rule against word and replace that with with laws that do not line up with the word, we're losing our greatness. There's something blessed about walking in divine order. And as we rail and shake our fist, brothers and sisters, it is not good for our country. But I want to make something very clear. Uh, the, The main reason that I think we should be under divine order is because when you fight against it, it brings brokenness and heartache and pain. I had a lot of that in those years, but at the same time, I want to make something perfectly clear. The church uh, living in the construct of 
a corrupt, blurred line society is nothing new and is nothing that we should be afraid of. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, I want to take a look there, but before I do, let me say this. Guzik says of Corinth, Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world, a community very much like Southern California, some of the other cities, maybe New Orleans. It was prosperous, busy, growing. It had a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. Corinth had a rich ethnic mix. It was a center for sports, government, military, and business. When Paul came to Corinth in A.D. 50, the city was famous for hundreds of years before he was born. Ancient writers considered Corinth rich, prosperous, always great and wealthy. The Romans destroyed Corinth in 146 B.C., but Julius Caesar rebuilt it 100 years later. Many things made Corinth famous, pottery, Corinthian brass, which was a mixture of gold, silver, and copper from the city. This was very famous. Famous athletic contests, the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympian Games, were held at the Temple of Poseidon in Corinth every two years. Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, Isis, uh, Serapis, and Asclepius, among others, had temples in their honor in Corinth. But the most prominent was the temple to Aphrodite, where there were more than a 1,000 female prostitutes and priestesses in her service. The Corinthian people were also world-renowned for partying, drunkenness, loose sexual morals. Uh, It was known all over the Roman Empire when someone was Corinthian. They were very loose. They were sexually out of control. Elian, the late Greek writer, tells that if ever a Corinthian was shown upon the stage in a Greek play, that Corinthian was always shown as drunk. Gordon Fee comments on Corinth's sexual immorality that Asclepius' room in the present museum in Corinth provides mute evidence to this facet of city life. Here on one wall, uh, this is very blunt, on one wall are a large number of clay votives, vases, filled with body parts, certain body parts of humans that had been offered to the God of healing for that body that had been ravaged by venereal diseases. Fee sums up his analysis of Corinth in writing, all of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas of the ancient world. Another writer describes it as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally bankrupt. The book of Corinthians is written, listen to this, to the church of God, At Corinth, a good thing in a bad place. God can raise up a church in a bad place, amen? And understanding the tension between the church and the city is so important in looking at the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The bottom line is this. The question is, is the church influencing the city or is the city influencing the church? And I could ask the same thing. Is the church influencing the world, sticking to its guns, sticking to the word, or is the world influencing the church? You look at denominations across the spectrum, brothers and sisters, and you'll see over and over the disappointing results of the world influencing the church. As we try to accommodate, as we try to 
be relevant, and I'm all about being relevant. But as we try to do so, so many denominations have compromised their core values. And I'm just going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, that is something that I am doing my best to be committed to at LifePoint, that we will not compromise our core values and our view of the word just and, and, and de-escalate the value of the word and escalate the, what everybody in the culture thinks about us. We have to keep the distinctives even in our gender distinction. G. Campbell Morgan says, well, in his introduction to 1 Corinthians, the measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure in which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. We are sometimes told today that what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. G. Campbell Morgan says a thousand times, no, what the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age. Now, having said that, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, Guzik points out, since there is such a clear condemnation of homosexuality in these verses, those who would like to justify the practice say that Paul speaks of homosexual prostitution only, not a loving, caring homosexual relationship. But taken in context, these verses, there is no doubt that God is speaking of homosexual acts of all kinds with the word that he uses in the Greek for homosexuals, which is literally a reference to male prostitutes. But then he adds this other word that's translated sodomites, which is a generic term for all, everybody say all, homosexual practice. Now here's something else to note. Paul did not write this letter in or of uh, to a culture that was homophobic. Homosexuality was rampant in the ancient world. Fourteen out of the first 15 Roman emperors were bisexual or homosexual. At the time Paul wrote, Nero was emperor. I mentioned it last week. He castrated a boy named Sporus, married him, lived with him as his wife. And then later the emperor lived with another man and Nero was declared to be the other man's wife. Now, in this list of sins, homosexuality is not some special version of homosexuality, but it's described with just, it's just a sin. It's homosexuality in these verses is just described as a sin. And so the bottom deal is, the bottom line is this. There are other sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were known for. Other sins that Corinth was known for. It's just a sin. And with God, sin is not a problem. Because the blood of Jesus is bigger and badder and stronger than any sin. 
anybody in this room has ever committed or can ever commit. The church at Corinth was made up of people who had been all of these things above. Guzik points out that there, the, the people described in 1 Corinthians 6 and 9 and 10 were the ones that would make up the people described in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. In other words, there is no sin that Jesus can't heal. It's not like, and, and, and we, we get prudish, you know, like, well, that's, that's one of those unspeakable sins. I've talked about this before, you know. I've been in church services and people are like, you know, how many of you, you used to be an alcoholic? And people raise their hands. How many of you, you used to, you know, smoke dope? And there'd be a few more hands that go up. But you never heard anybody say, how many of you used to be a prostitute? How many of you used to sleep around? You know, and it's not, you didn't, you know, people didn't do that. You know, people are like, you didn't even ask the question. You didn't, you didn't go there because those sins were taboo. Nobody wants to talk about it. There's a lot of baggage that comes along with that. But I'm going to tell you something. In this room, in the church of the living God, there are people with all kinds of sins in their background, but they've been covered by the blood of Jesus that is more than enough. You've been washed. You've been justified by the Spirit of our God, by the name of the Lord and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Give him some praise. Can you do it? Well, there you go. Now, here's the deal. Homosexuality was not the only sin of Sodom by a long shot. I just felt like we needed to kind of address that because that's something you don't hear in churches much anymore. And to say that it wasn't part of what was going on at Sodom is an error. But Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50 have something to say about Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Verse 49, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So the Lord goes point by point into some details that we don't necessarily catch in Genesis 19. We understand here she was full of pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. She lived in an area, Sodom was considered to be like the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden. And she was arrogant about this place. It was the type of city that the citizenry was very proud to be a part of. And that's something that every city, principality, every nation, even in America, we we should not be proud, just I'm proud to be an American. I thank God he shed his grace on us. But I'm not lifted up in pride because it's something we've done. It's the blessing of the Lord. But this city was 
filled with civic pride to a fault, lifted up in pride. Pride is saying, I did it. It has nothing to do with God. It was all about self. Self-made men tend to worship their creator, and that's one of the things that Sodom was guilty of. And then it says, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. The well-watered plains is what the area is called. The well-watered plains is like the garden of the Lord. There was agricultural abundance in Sodom, and they were independent and They didn't have to work. They enjoyed the comforts of life. So you have this idleness and yet prosperity that comes along. And so, you know, my grandmother used to say an idle mind is the devil's workshop. That's not in the Bible, but I understand that. When you're bored, you can get yourself into trouble. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. You would think that Sodom with all of this abundance and overage, would reach out and help people who were poor and struggling. But did she do that? Not at all. She just heaped it upon herself. It's like the guy that said, I'm so rich, I'm so rich, I don't have enough room to store all my stuff. I'll build bigger barns. And the Lord said, your soul is required of you. They put their trust in things, and they didn't reach out and see anybody else. These are all things we need to guard against, incidentally, right? We don't want to be lifted up in pride. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to rest on our laurels. And we certainly don't want to neglect the needs of others. We're all about Jesus, people, and mission. They were haughty, and it says they committed abomination. Ancient Sodom was filled with pride, idolatry, and sexual depravity that was no doubt involving homosexuality. So, We can see this was a luxurious, prosperous group of people that did not keep their focus on the Lord. Now, the only way to explain the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is to look at it from the 30,000-foot perspective. It wasn't that God was afraid of proud people. It wasn't that God despised lazy people and couldn't stand to be around them and wanted to kill them all. It wasn't that he was angry with people that didn't treat the poor with respect and help them out. It wasn't that the sexual depravity of the land was something that he just just had to look away from and decided to just wipe them out because he was tired of it all. No, From the big picture perspective, you have to understand, they became a threat to his promises made at the fall of man that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Abraham had been reeled into this. That's why I made such a point to say that the fallen angels of Genesis 6, the flood of Noah, those things had big picture perspectives. Those were threats. That society of the flood, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, even though he killed 34 million people in the Bible. He killed that generation of Noah because Noah was the last man standing. He was the last man believing. And so then, fast forward, Abraham has been revealed this powerful plan of God. Abraham, wouldn't you say, is pivotal in God's plan? Jesus is called the seed of Abraham. 
The church is called, if you're in Christ, then are you Abraham's seed? Abraham is vital to the plans and purposes of God. God had told Abraham, leave Lot behind. But what did Abraham do? He he drug Lot along. Lot was a problem. And Lot had gotten himself into Sodom and was in trouble. And Sodom and Gomorrah, the future would have possibly adversely affected Abraham and his faith. He had to get an Isaac and a Jacob into the world. Are you with me? Jacob would become the Israel of God. And so you have to look at from the big perspective. It wasn't that God was just afraid of these, oh, this old sinful. If, if the Lord was looking to wipe out sinful people because of their sin, who could stand? Who in this room could stand? If it was just that, oh, they're they're sinful and, oh, it's like like God's a prudish God, then no one could stand. It's by His mercies that we're not consumed, every single one of us. But what happened was Lot had gotten into Sodom. Sodom was a threat to Abraham. And so God, in His providence, wiped them out in the same way that He dealt with those fallen angels dealt with that generation during the flood. He did the same with Sodom and Gomorrah because one day there had to be a virgin girl named Mary that the angel could appear to and say, hey, you're highly favored. You're you're one of Abraham's daughters. You're a daughter of Zion, and I'm going to do something. The Lord's going to do something spectacular through you. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And so when God went after Sodom, it wasn't because he's afraid of sin. It's because they were a threat to the plans and purposes of God. Are you with me? We see that over and over again. We think of God as being capricious. He's just, you never know about God. He's in a good mood. He's in a bad mood. He's like those drama faces and comedy faces. Like, he's happy, he's mad. He's happy, he's sad. And the idea is this, that's not the truth. The Lord is a God of redemption, and he has sworn, hey, Adam, you and your sons, I'm going to get you all up. I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to undo what this snake has done. And Sodom and Gomorrah was a threat, and the Lord was making a way where there seemed to be no way. But nevertheless, we shouldn't be proud. We shouldn't be arrogant. We shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't not consider the poor and needy and reach out to people and help them. And we shouldn't walk in sexual immorality. The blurred lines of our society have become a curse. They've bitten our faces off. Now we have Facebook with 63 gender identities. Are you kidding me? There's only two. All right, well, it's quiet. We got through that. 809, verses 6 through 8. So Lot went to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Remember, the, the men of the city were after these men, these angels who looked like men. And Lot says, Now, see, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you so that you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. 
Now, this is absolutely appalling what Lot does here. But he understands. He's called a righteous man. Abraham has trained him in the ways of the Lord, at least to some extent. And he understands there's something profoundly important about these men. And so he's doing the right thing, but he's doing it in a terrible way. Verses 9 through 11, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting like a, uh, as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them, shut the door, struck the men who were at the doorway. So these are the Sodomites, strikes them blind. We've seen this before in the book of Acts, different places, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Verses 12 through 16. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you may have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand. He's still sticking around. And his wife saying, In the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to them, and brought him out and set him outside the city. I'm closing here. Verse 17. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. Lot is an incredibly complex character. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. From the Lord of the heavens, so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Stand with me right now. Lot had such an affection for that culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had lost his voice. His sons-in-law thought he was joking when he tells them God's about to do something terrible here. They didn't believe him. He still lingers. The angels have to grab him and the family by the hand. And the angels knew they did Their heart is in this city. They don't want to leave this culture. 
talk about the church affecting the culture or the culture affecting the church. The culture had affected Lot. He had compromised. And so the angel said, I know you want to look back, but whatever you do, don't look back. And so as they're leaving the city, Lot's wife, next verse, turned and looked back. Because that's where her heart was. And when she looked back, the Bible says she was turned into a pillar of salt. Like a salt pillar. This is around the area of the Dead Sea. Very salty. A lot of legend and myth surrounding all of this. The idea is this, though. Lot got out, but he had exposed his family to so much of that culture. That culture was in their family. It was a mess. And he lost his wife. We're going to see a disaster then takes him with his daughters. It's terrible what happened. That culture had affected his family. Let me just say this. Dad, Mom, be careful what you expose your children to. Hollywood has lost its mind. Its moorings are gone. The internet is filled with trash. Be careful what you let your kids. I mean, I know they're smarter than we are when it comes to that stuff. But you put up those barriers. You make that distinction. We are not of this world. We may be in this world, but this world's not in us. We're in this world, but not of this world. We're different. We're distinct. It's time for a generation to rise up, and it's going to come from moms and dads. You young parents, hear me. Young moms and dads raising these babies, raise your kids to fear the Lord and not the culture. Raise them to be stronger than peers and where they succumb to peer pressure. They can fight. I'm rambling, but do you understand what I'm saying? Lot lost his family. Because Sodom and Gomorrah affected them rather than him affecting the culture. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Genesis 19. Sobering stories here, God. Difficult things to examine and wrap our minds around. But nevertheless, a challenge. Lord Jesus, you even said, remember Lot's wife. We shouldn't forget this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our heart is not here. Our treasure is not here. It's beyond the blue. It's on the other side. And God, we love people. We understand there's no sin that anybody's committed that you can't forgive. This church is comprised of people with all different backgrounds. Father, there's a distinction. We were that way. But now we have been washed and we have been cleansed. And we have been justified. Father, we did live like that, but now we live differently. Believers don't live the same way they lived before they came to know Christ. Help us to realize that right now, Father, in Jesus' name.